0: Open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's consider a few more aspects of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I have preached on this passage twice before, once these verses by themselves, and another time going through the whole book of 2 Corinthians, in verse 14 we have these words, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And that's why Paul appeared to most men, even Christians, as being beside himself. He seemed to be like a fanatic because he was so taken up with the love of Christ. Christ's love for him, having died for him, constrained him. He didn't know what else he could do in life except serve the one who had died for him that he might live. So we come to a point about our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the point of affectionate. A great man is an affectionate man. Great men are caring. They're demonstrative about their love. They're giving and they're loving to those related to them. Marriage is much more than a cooperative partnership or a living arrangement with a person. Marriage is an intimate, personal, loving, affectionate, caring, giving, helping relationship. Consider that all the previous traits we've considered, even good moral character, has its limitations if the party containing all those things doesn't love you. What if the Lord Jesus Christ had great achievements, superior leadership, great observational abilities, perfect moral character, but didn't love us? Would it damage the gospel a little bit? It would destroy the gospel. He loves us. He loves us with an everlasting love. Let me share a few verses with you. Love is so important that even poor men have made great husbands by being demonstrative lovers to their wives. Lovers in word and lovers in deed. And I'm not talking about lovemaking by itself. I'm talking about all the aspects of companionship between a husband and a wife. While love, the selfless care for another person's good, is preeminent here as we think about Jesus Christ's love, it must be conveyed for its full value. What if Jesus Christ just loved us and died for us 2,000 years ago, went to heaven and sat down, and left us to go through this life and to face death without knowing that? His love for us has been conveyed to us. It's been communicated. He is demonstrative about it. He has stressed it. He has exalted it. He exalts it in the pages of Scripture. We want to look at a few of those. If we judge the love of Jesus for us like the Apostle Paul did, it should change our lives. It changed his life. The love of Christ constraineth me. It locks me up into only one thing I can do. If he died for me, that means I was dead. Now that I'm alive, by his death for me, I need to use my whole life for him. And Paul did. And they thought he was beside himself. But it was just that he understood the love of Christ. He saw the glories of Christ and he had met Christ. And Christ changed him on the road to Damascus. Didn't regenerate him. Converted him. And with the help of Ananias. And then Paul gave the rest of his life in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' love for us is greater than any other by dying for us. Look at John 15 and it's going to be in the red writing And the 13th verse, John 15 and verse 13, you have never been to a great speech by a great man with an introduction of that man saying or including the speaker died for you (laughs) to even say it is to almost sound cheap. Because I really can't make comparisons on, on any of these things because he is infinitely superior to the best we can imagine or create in an outline. John 15. Is it in the red? See, I have an old, I have an Oxford. And they don't like to put the red writing. Is it, is it in the red? I know what's in the red. It's the 13th verse of John 15. Greater love... Hath no man than this? How much does this impeccable, achieving, accomplishing, superior Lord Jesus Christ, our beloved and our friend, how much does he love us? Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. To die for someone is the ultimate act of giving. You can give a card on an anniversary. You can give a card on a birthday. You can bake a cake and give it on a birthday. You can give a car on a birthday. And you still haven't shown anything worthy of note. But what about giving your life? What about dying? Intentionally, consciously, and knowingly. The Lord Jesus Christ did it. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep John chapter 10 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 says it this way about the love of Jesus Christ for us 1 John 3 and the 16th verse hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren Jesus Christ loves us that much that he died for us I know this is a very simple point This is something that we should all be well grounded and established in. But Peter would remind me and remind you that we should remember these things, and I should bring them to your remembrance, though you be established in the present truth. This is for you. I don't know of anyone, really, living like Paul. So, to me, I need to preach on this. You're not constrained enough. You're constrained by the world. You're constrained by your family. You're constrained by your dog. You're constrained by your pool. You're constrained by other things. Let's all think about the perfect Son of God in both human and divine natures loving us so much. He laid down His life for us. It was not a mysterious theological transaction in the Godhead. The man Christ Jesus who had a physical craving for life as much as you have ever had who thirsted on that dry cross as much as you have ever been thirsty and a whole lot more He willingly laid down His life. John 10, 18 No man taketh it from me but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is unbelievable. To get to this point, and to find out that the most perfect man, the God-man in the universe, to whom all the angels report, died for us sinners, is unbelievable. It's amazing what you and I will do for another little sinful wretch that loves us. My little sinful wretch of a wife. When she tells me she loves me. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. But it's, it's nothing in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ loving us. Amen. And He loved us so much And he says greater love hath no man that a man lay down his life for his friends. A a fool or a scorner may raise the sacrifices that soldiers or firemen make, but it is entirely unrelated to what Jesus Christ did. No soldier ever went into battle and no fireman ever went into a house intending and planning and knowing about his death. He was trained by instinct, if you're in the secret service, to throw yourself in front of the commander-in-chief and take a bullet. For the man. It's instinct. He never plans on doing it. And when it happens, he just reacts. Because he's supposed to react. And he's trained to react. But the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't like that. The Lord Jesus Christ knew his whole long life. What he was going to do on the cross of Calvary. He knew its torment. He knew its trouble. He knew the cup he was going to drink. And the baptism that he was going to be baptized with. All in advance. And he purposed to drink the cup. And go through the baptism. And brethren, here's the crucial point. He did it for his enemies. He's being merciful in John 15 because he's talking to his converted apostles and he calls them friends. And he tells them that in the next verse. But he laid down his life for his enemies because it was the dowry for his marriage. He paid his father to marry us by his own life because we were ugly, sinful, rebellious wretches. Right. What love the Father hath bestowed upon us to arrange a marriage where the dowry is the blood and life of His own Son? How do I tell you? The Lord of glory! If you saw Him for one nanosecond, and if they can divide a nanosecond, if you saw Him for that division, it would change your life if you're a child of God, if you saw Him for one nanosecond, to realize that that being loves me. And that being loves you with the love that no one else has ever had for you and no one else ever will for you because there is nothing about you to deserve that kind of love. And He doesn't do it because you have anything deserving of that love. He does it for the glory of Almighty God, for the greatest drama in the history of the universe, that we are going to be the most thankful bride ever. Amen. Do you, when are you going to start celebrating your marriage? We should start celebrating it today. Right. And I hope that you have when we've sung those songs. Oh, he, but, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. That commends His love. It exalts it. It lifts it up. It adorns it with the truthfulness of it. Look at Jeremiah 31.3, or listen to me read it to you. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. The love of God for His people, the love of Christ for His people is everlasting. We were given to Jesus Christ to die for us by covenant before the world began. Our names were written in the book of life, inscribed in the palms of his hands, though he be an invisible spirit as the word of God. The covenant was made in eternity. It's called the everlasting covenant. And God promised eternal life before the world began to us. It's an everlasting love. And it's an everlasting love that is more than words and it's more than a card. It works. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Do you know why you're here today? And if you love the Lord Jesus Christ today, do you know why? Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Every good change in our lives that is toward Him, He has drawn it from us. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him. And He's drawn us with loving kindness. Look at the book of Hosea. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Just turn to the right about... A quarter of an inch, a half an inch. It depends on your Bible. I want you to turn to the book of Hosea and chapter 11. Look at verse 1. When Israel was a child, that's his church of the Old Testament. Then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Verse 3. I taught Ephraim also to go. That's one of the tender names for Israel taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. Do you know that God has taken you by your arms and led you through portions of your life even though you didn't know it? You want to go for a walk in the park with some guy? Hello? How about the Lord taking you by your arms and leading you to some good place you didn't even know existed? And you didn't know it till you got there. Look at the fourth verse. This, This is what I want. I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. Amen. When the Lord Jesus Christ takes you for a walk, He takes the yoke off that other men have put on you because they're thieves and robbers wanting to fleece the sheep He comes to give you pasture and that's why He lays meat to you. Instead of having your jaw bound up in a yoke because some pastor, priest, or pope wants you to pull his cart for him and because He wants to fleece you and make you earn your way to heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ says it is finished and He lays meat to you. He gives you meat to use your jaw to eat meat and to consume the good things. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's affectionate. I'm sorry I can't do better. Go home and go to the home page of our website and find the words that say do you know my king. Punch the little arrow that Matthew put there for you and listen to 6 minutes and 18 seconds of adoring praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish that I could preach sometimes like Shadrach and Meshach, but you know the truth be told, poor Shadrach and Meshach Didn't know everything that he could have known about the Lord Jesus Christ. But what he did know, he sure did know how to praise Him. I hope you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're you're neglectful of your brother's website. It would have been in your preparatory if I could have figured out how to make a link out of it. I've already been questioned about that, brother, webmaster. I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the loving Lord Jesus Christ speaking. He didn't merely love us legally or theologically. He filled us with His Holy Spirit so that we would know He loves us. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Have you ever had someone tell you that they love you but you heard the words, but you just didn't really get... You, you weren't really sure. You, you questioned the Spirit. It wasn't passionate enough. It wasn't deep enough. It wasn't enough for your soul that longs for more. You've heard the words. Jesus Christ does not leave us that way. He didn't just complete a transaction on Calvary that legally showed His love, or that theologically or... The real term is soteriologically. That's the doctrine of salvation or the science of salvation. He conveyed it to us in two ways. One, He filled us with His Spirit. And look what that Spirit is given to us for. Romans five five, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. When we put our hope that the Lord Jesus Christ is my husband, and the Lord Jesus Christ has an eternal inheritance for me, waiting in heaven, reserved for me, when we put our hope there, we're never going to be ashamed if we're a child of God with the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit in our hearts sheds abroad the love of God for you. So He conveyed it. It's one thing to have died on Calvary for us, but He's conveyed it by a Spirit inside us, which is called in Galatians 4.6, the Spirit of God's dear Son. It's the Spirit of Christ that testifies and witnesses to us that we are indeed the sons of God, like He's the Son of God, joint heirs of His eternal inheritance. That's one way He conveys it to us. The other way is through the Gospel and the beautiful feet of them that come and preach... Glad tidings of good things. And what are the glad tidings of good things? That God so loved us that He gave His Son to die for us. Amen. That here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. No greater love hath a man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends who were really his enemies. Is he affectionate? Oh, he's affectionate. Jesus Christ was of such affectionate personal conduct that John lay on his bosom at supper and the other apostles knew that John was going to get that spot. Do you know that? Do you know that Peter knew that John was going to get there? Do you know that they talked about John being the, the disciple that laid on Jesus' bosom? You know that Peter had to ask the disciple that was laying on Jesus' bosom who was going to betray him? Our Lord is personal and affectionate. Jesus wept and groaned at the funeral of Lazarus, which I preached to you recently, for the brother of Mary and Martha. When he meets Mary Magdalene, outside his tomb, on the first day of the week, What happens to you and how fast do you read the Bible when he said, woman, why weepest thou? Did he know why she was weeping? Was he going to have some pleasant fun with her? What's his next word to her? Mary? Did she recognize it? When you hear a hello on the telephone, are you able to recognize some voices? Do you think her heart burned within her? Why was He so personal? What had He done for Mary earlier in her life when He drew her with the cords of a man? Cast out seven devils. Mary? She knew who he was. He was not the gardener like she had supposed. Right, I, re- I read those things and I know that we have a very affectionate Savior. You probably haven't had seven devils cast out of you. I might have had. But do you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ can speak to us. He's affectionate. He loves us. He loves us in a theological, soteriological, legal way. And that's all true in the Bible. But you know what? He loves us personally. We've been written in the Lamb's book of life. We've been inscribed in the palms of His hands. He's known us since eternity, and He's promised us eternal life by covenant. Our Lord's care of His people is described as keeping us as the apple of His eye. Deuteronomy 32. Zechariah chapter 3. Where the apple of his eye. He's so loving. And he married us. What did he bring to the marriage? I've already been over the fact that he paid a dowry of his own life's blood. But what does this man bring to the marriage? And with this I'll close, but give me a couple of minutes. A man that you marry is greatly enhanced as a man and as a husband if he is the beneficiary of a large estate. He has an inheritance. Danielle would have found a little bit more excitement marrying David if David's daddy had a million bucks for them as soon as daddy, David's daddy would breathe his last. Because a million bucks... Buys things. It makes life comfortable. Now, I know it was mostly you. But if Daddy had a million, it would have helped Danielle be a little bit happier at that wedding. She would have looked at me just a little bit differently. I speak as a fool, just like Paul did many times, because I want to make a point to you. When a woman can marry a man that is going to bring a big inheritance along, that someday when she has a lot of little children running around, that they are going to be the beneficiaries of this monstrous estate that's going to be transferred from father to son, and that son is her husband. That means her children are going to get that estate in just a few years from her husband. I mean, that just makes marriage a a little sweeter. You can say, but I only got married for love. You're sick. I mean, there's a little bit more. You know what Solomon would say about that? Money answereth all things. And I'm not trying to make God a money. Money answereth all things. Money helps. Money is icing on the cake. Tell the little woman I'm sorry. I got a sword. It's a replica. The better the inheritance that is added to the marriage, the better the life of the woman involved. And in this particular case, we are the woman, we are the bride, and He is our bridegroom and our husband, and God is His Father. And I want you to take notice of some verses I'm going to share with you right now in the spirit of what I'm preaching. Jesus is our husband, we are His bride, and what does the Bible say about the inheritance He has brought to this wedding? Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Now this morning, I wanted the last clause of Hebrews 1, 2. Now I want the next to the last clause of Hebrews 1, 2. And what is the next to the last clause of Hebrews 1, 2? Whom he hath appointed heir of all things. I don't own nothing. I guess that means I own something, but I'm just trying to corrupt my language for you to appreciate it for a moment. I have nothing. But I'm married to a man, the man Christ Jesus, who is the heir of all things. You know, I wouldn't mind a Chrysler 300 with a souped-up Hemi 425-horsepower engine. It's 4.7 seconds in the 0 to 60. And 12.7 in a quarter mile excites me a little bit. But I must ask myself, a car? The Lord Jesus is the heir of all things. I can have an angel take me for a ride in a chariot. They go faster than 0 to 60 in 4.7 while I was a speaking, Daniel said the angel had made it from heaven to earth. He is heir of all things and he's our husband. What in the world are you worried about? Just say, I don't own much. I don't have much. I don't know if I'm ever going to own much. You own everything. And the Bible wants you to know that. You are a joint heir of Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things, but you are a joint heir with him. Therefore, all things are yours. Does the Bible say it in those words? It does. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And the apostle used it to even stop the preacher factions that had taken place at Corinth because everything was theirs. So forget Apollos and Peter and Paul. None of them matter. Everything is yours. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 21, therefore let no man glory in men. Stop these preacher faction fighting and separation and division of the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 3, 21, therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ, and Christ is God. Well, thank you, brothers. Thank you, brothers. When you go to Georgetown, you just remember that 300 years ago, that church had 1,200 black members and five white members. And when Elisha Screvin preached that all things are ours, he got more than two amens. I don't need amens to preach. I'm looking for my amen from the Lord Jesus Christ because I'm going to give my account to Him. I don't give it to you. I don't really care what you think about my preaching. But you ought to be saying amen to the truth. Do you know what it would be like to preach this to 1,200 slaves? I'll bet they got into it a little bit. Do you know what? You aren't any better off than they were. Look at Ephesians 1.18. Just give me a couple more minutes on this one point. This is, this is the gospel. This is what needs to be communicated so that you will realize that there is nothing out there that you should be pursuing and chasing that's going to give you satisfaction. You already own everything. So, I love my Jeep. Doesn't mean that I'll always drive my Jeep. Ephesians 1.18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. This is what Paul was praying for the great church at Ephesus. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Part of the gospel is to remind you, you own everything. Don't worry about what you do or you do not have here in this life. And that inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. And he has predestinated you to it. Look at up, look at farther up in chapter one. Look at verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. You have an inheritance coming, right. being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. You have an inheritance and you are predestinated to it. Then verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. The purchased possession is your body. It's going to be in the ground. It's been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be redeemed or bought back up out of the ground. It's going to be glorified. And in that glorified body, which you're going to need a glorified body to be able to experience and appreciate the infinite joys and pleasures and riches of heaven, your body right now would cave in, crush, and wouldn't be able to appreciate and respond properly to the glories of heaven. But you will be given a glorified body to be able to absorb all the pleasure and riches of the presence of God and the Lamb. And we were predestinated to it. And the earnest of it, which is proof, the proof, the performance bond, the guarantee of this inheritance is the presence of the Spirit of God. And if you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning in sincerity and in truth, it's proof that the Spirit of God is in you and you have that earnest. Abraham knew about this inheritance and it changed his life. He was 75 years old. Living in Ur of the Chaldeans. The home of human civilization on earth. And God said, leave and go to a place that I have for you. Abraham said, give me a few and I'll get packed. I'm ready. Abraham left. He didn't know where he was going. The Bible tells us very plainly that Abraham was not looking for that piece of desert at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Right. He was looking for heaven itself. And it's called his inheritance in the Bible. That inheritance is not based on the works of the law because it wasn't given to Moses. It was given to Abraham by faith. And Abraham by faith left Ur of the Chaldeans and went into the land of promise, which was but a token of heaven itself. It changed Abraham's life. He was a rich man. You ain't. It changed his life. If you ain't a rich man and it changed a rich man's life, then what should it do to you? It should twice change yours. Should You have an inheritance. Right. Who cares? Listen, can we be content on saltines and peanut butter? Can we be content on less? How about the saltines without the peanut butter? Does it really matter? you know what we're going to be eating for eternity? Whatever God puts on the table. And it's going to take a glorified body to receive it, and it's going to take God to give it, and it's going to be there forever and ever and ever, and every other pleasure that there is in heaven, we're going to be in the presence of God and the Lamb forevermore. It's our inheritance. It changed Abraham's life. Jesus, our Savior, your husband, said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I wouldn't mislead you. I'd go to prepare a place for you. Do you know what your husband is doing right now? He's preparing a place for you. Uh, That is unbelievable. Do you know what happens? We're so cold and dull from watching too many Superman movies and Johnny Rambo and crap like that that's on the television, that we can't fully appreciate the glories of this gospel. Maybe if you were out in a field picking rice in the swampy marshes of Georgetown all your life, and you didn't have a thing to show for it, except that your master was living in a great big white pillared house, maybe you'd appreciate it. You have an inheritance. Look at Acts chapter 20. Last reference. The Apostle Paul, his last time speaking personally to the elders of Ephesus, to whom we just read his epistle to them in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at what he said in verse 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God... And to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up, and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Do you know what God gave you His word for? It's to tell you what good things are coming. It's to build you up to know about the inheritance that's coming. The inheritance has been secured by Jesus Christ, promised by Jesus Christ, but it's the word It's the Word of God that is able to build us up to understand it, know about it, hear about it, and have it increase our faith. Because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Then in chapter twenty-six, Acts chapter 26, look at what the Lord Jesus Christ said to Paul about his preaching. This is his conversion testimony that he gave three times in Acts. Chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. This is number 3 to King Agrippa. And he's going to quote the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it in the red writing in your Bibles? Or do they forget to do it? Okay. Verse 18. Let's get 17. Delivering thee from the people, Jewish people, and from the Gentiles, Gentile people, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, thank you Paul, for preaching and writing, to open our eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The preaching of the gospel is to bring knowledge that whether you be bond or free, whether you're a master or a servant, there's an inheritance waiting for you. And do you know when you go to work tomorrow, what the Bible tells you in Colossians chapter 3 about serving your master? And if you're a master tomorrow when you go to work, do you know what the Bible says about being a master? I said those with my last verses, but I didn't mean it. So Colossians chapter 3 and verse 24. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Can you go to work tomorrow and serve Michelin? Can you go to work tomorrow and serve Costco? Can you go to work tomorrow and serve BB&T, IBM, Bilo, and other companies? Can you do it? Can you do it with your might? Can you do it fairly? Can you be respectful? Can you be punctual? Can you avoid purloining? Will you stop answering again? Will you do it out of your heart? Will you obey your masters in all things? Will you avoid eye service as men-pleasers? Will you do it as one that fears God? Will you do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men? Why? Why should I work like that? He's a mean boss. It's a hard job. He's a pagan. Why should I work like that? Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Colossians 3, 24. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go to work for Him tomorrow. When The next time you eat food, you just remember He's provided and He owns the cattle in a thousand hills. He could give you filet mignon every day for the rest of your life if He thought it would be for your good and His glory. But you know it wouldn't be for your good. You'll get that in heaven. And you'll be with the Lamb forever. All of it's held in store. It's coming. We have it in writing. We have it in writing. The Lord Jesus Christ loves us, and He has an inheritance for us. He's worthy of our whole lives. It changed Paul's life. It should help you when you go to work tomorrow at Wachovia, Wells Fargo, and the lab at Furman University, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the inheritance. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.